0: As we go forward with this, let me remind you, we talked about three key words on Sunday to help understand the book of Leviticus. The first being, Holiness. The key word of holiness, Leviticus 11.45, God says, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, and thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. And eight times in the Bible, God says, be holy, for I am holy. And that is the substance of this book. It is about holiness. That's the key word. The key personality is Jesus Christ. This third book in the books of Moses, this third book in the Old Testament, yes, the key personality is Jesus. And again tonight we're going to begin looking at three, hopefully three of the five sacrificial offerings that are described at the beginning of this book. And each one of these presents cameos of the Christ. And we'll look at those cameos tonight as we begin to move through and see Jesus. And, and I'm not just making this stuff up, folks. And you will see as we walk through that they are clearly outlines, pictures, cameos of Jesus himself. First 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. First importance. And if it is of first importance, we should expect to see it throughout the Bible, God's Word. Uh, Victor Bosan, it's the name that I couldn't remember on Sunday, and the book that I couldn't remember that he wrote, The Gospel in the Feast of Israel, he wrote the following. He said, the basic weakness of modern Judaism is that it is aware of sins, but it ignores sins. That struck me. It's aware of sins, plural, but it ignores sin. In other words, the essential bias of man toward evil, the sinfulness of man's very nature. You see, Judaism, at least modern Judaism, still teaches to this day that man can be good enough, that man is by nature relatively good. And it's that goodness that just needs the law to direct him, and and man can become righteous by his works. But the reality is, the truth is, and the Bible is clear, and I believe our lives are clear, That the nature of man is not good. It's not in the middle. It is evil. We have a sin nature. And it's only by the power of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, that that sin nature is overcome. That we receive the righteousness that only comes through Jesus. So the key personality is Jesus in this book. The key recipients as we saw on Sunday are the called the called for the first three words and the four words, and the Lord called if the ye cry, cried cry in the Hebrew and he called and the Lord called but if I may, I want to add one more keyword to our study of this book. Something else that you might want to jot in the margins and keep in mind, for you are going to see a lot of it, and that is the key substance of this book it's blood. Blood. Eighty eight times in the book of Leviticus, blood is referred to or mentioned. This is a bloody book. To the point that some people have even been disgusted by it. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. And we're going to get into this one in depth on Sunday. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood pumps thick and true and rich through the heart of Leviticus. You'll see a lot of blood. So steel yourselves. But with all this in mind... Let's dig in. Verse 1, chapter 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flocks." If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, which is now the tabernacle, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him, to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar its entrails however and its legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs, he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds... Then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. He shall then tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up And smoke on the altar On the wood which is on the fire It is a burnt offering An offering by fire Of a soothing aroma To the Lord Let me remind you again God is now speaking From out of the tabernacle In Exodus God thundered to the people Frightening them from the mountain But now in Leviticus He is speaking to the people In intimacy He is speaking to Moses From the tabernacle Centered, located in the middle Of the camp of Israel God is now among his people. And so he begins to outline the offerings, which later will be filled in by the substance of Christ. The outline is here, the substance will later come. And here we see our first cameo. Five burnt offerings, or five offerings, five cameos of Christ. Cameo number one, in the burnt offering, we see the dedication of Christ. The dedication of Christ. I want to give you several poignant things to note about this offering. And the first one is this. Under this cameo, this dedication of Christ, we see first that the burnt offering was voluntary. It was voluntary. It was commanded by God as to how they were to do or to give or to bring the burnt offering. But it wasn't demanded. It was voluntary. It wasn't forced. The Hebrew word for offering here may be familiar to some of you. If you're a student of the word, you've heard it before. In fact, flip in your Bibles over to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, keeping your finger there in Leviticus 1. Mark chapter 7 and verse 8. The Hebrew word for offering is korban. Korban C-O-R-B-A-N It literally means to present or to bring near So when you see the word offering used, the word is Korban To present When you bring your presentation Your present, your gift When you bring what you have to the Lord Near to Him That's what Korban means But that simple meaning had become so twisted By the time Jesus walked the earth That there was a problem that arose Mark chapter 7 and verse 8 Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had gathered around him. And in verse 8 he says, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now I want you to note this and pay attention. Because Jesus was very hard on empty-headed tradition. He didn't stand for it. If you ever see Jesus angry, if you ever see him in argument, it's likely because he's going after or attacking tradition that has replaced love. And the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees had blinded them literally and many of the Jewish people to even seeing who Jesus was. And so right now he's getting a little hot under the collar. He says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, there's the word, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do so, and you do many things such as that. What they did, gang, is they would come along... And someone, a priest, would say, no, all that I have is Korban. It goes to the Lord. And they would not have to honor their parents. They wouldn't have to care, possibly, for their parents in old age. They wouldn't have to look out for or concern themselves with the needs of their parents. Even though God's law said, honor mom and dad. Look after them. Care for them. the priest would say, no, it's Korban. It's my offering. Everything I have is an offering to the Lord. And they weasel out of what God commanded, which was relational, which was important, which was driven by love, so that they could stand up and live by their traditions. They took this idea of a free will offering, which is the burnt offering, and they turned it into basically a charge for their parents. It would cost their parents. It's robbing Peter to pay Paul, no pun intended. But people do it today. We do it today. We talked last week quite a bit about giving. I won't get into that, but we did say last week, and I'll repeat it again this week, don't do it if your heart's not in it. Because if your heart's not in it, it's about tradition. It's about legalism. And it's not going to connect you anymore with the Father. If it's grudging, do it because you want to, because you love the Lord, because you are compelled to by His love. But I want to extend this idea to ministry in general. The service that you give, the ministry that you do for other people is most effective when it's voluntary, when it's compelled by love and a desire to just serve the Lord. That's the way Jesus was. What Jesus did and how we see him as a cameo in this picture, this voluntary offering, Jesus offered himself voluntarily. This was not a forced deal. God didn't one say one day in heaven turn to himself and say, turn to Jesus and say, you got to do this. No choice. Go now. Do it. It's interesting. We've read this verse numerous times. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, it's, it's a, a quote, a prophetic quote of Jesus saying, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Now I have so focused every time I've read that verse on the part about in the scroll of the book, it's written of me, because I think that's so cool. You know, it's that confirmation that Jesus has written up and spoken about throughout the Bible. But I miss the rest of the verse. Taking that middle section out, he says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus came into the world to do God's will. Not Jesus' will, but he did it voluntarily. He came to do God's will, and nowhere is this more poignant than in Gethsemane. When Jesus, on the night before He was betrayed, said to His disciples, Matthew twenty-six thirty-eight, My soul is deeply grieved. To the point of death, remain here and keep watch with Me. And He went a little beyond them, and He fell down on His face, and He prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. And okay, when He says, if it is possible... If it is possible, let this pass from me. The word possible there is dunatos. It literally means power. What he's saying is, if it's within your power, Lord, take this cup from me. If it's within your power, Father, don't make me go through this. Of course it was within God's power. The very phrase itself assumes that. It is a first class conditional clause in the Greek. Who cares? What does that mean? It means this. Jesus is saying, Father, if it be possible, while assuming it is possible. If it's possible. If it's within your power, take this from me. And God could have. But Jesus finished the phrase by saying, But not not as I will. As you will, Father. Jesus' walk to the cross was 100% chosen, voluntary, like the voluntary burnt offering that was given. It's as though Jesus said, the wood I am about to be laid upon in the cross, the fire of sacrifice and suffering I am about to endure, let this pass from me, but not as I will, voluntary. Secondly, the burnt offering was substitutionary. It was substitutionary. Look at verse 4 in chapter 1. It tells us that when a person brings someone, from, uh, an animal from the herd, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Now that said again, it refers to bringing a lamb from the flock. You lay your hands on the head of the burnt offering. We talked about this before. That is a sign of identification. Identification. It's the way when someone brought an offering, they put their hands on the head of the beast, and in so doing, identified their self with the beast in the offering. Their sin transferred to the animal that was then offered. Matthew chapter 27, verse 24 and 25, it's interesting. Pilate said, I am innocent. I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. His blood on us. It's the one biblical statement removed from the movie The Passion because it was so upsetting to the Jewish community. Jews heard that that statement was in there, knowing, I guess, assuming that it was in the Bible. The, the people had said, the Jewish people had said, His blood shall be on us. And they said, that, that's, that's going to cause all kinds of problems for us. People are going to blame us for the crucifixion of Christ. The problem is, His blood is on them. It was by their desire. So then that's the whole point. His blood is on us. Substitutionarily, His blood spilt for my blood. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. Listen to this as a propitiation in His blood through faith. A what? A propitiation. What exactly does that mean? Well, I'll tell you the Greek word just to confuse you some more. It's hilisterion. Thank you. Isn't that great? Thanks. You're welcome. Why is that important? Who cares what the word is? Well, the interesting thing is that same exact word is also used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, but it's translated differently. In Romans chapter 3, propitiation of his blood through faith. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, the word is translated the mercy seat. The mercy seat. What's propitiation mean? It means the mercy seat. It means the mercy of God poured out. It means substitutionarily Jesus spilled his blood for my blood. There are two people, two ways that, that people approach Christ today. One way is people tend to say, I'm innocent of his blood. I actually heard someone say in response to a friend trying to lead them to the Lord, he said, You know what? I'm sorry that Christ had to die, but it's not my fault. It's not my deal. I am innocent of His blood, Pilate said. It has nothing to do with me. The other way people can approach Christ is to say, His blood be upon me. But listen to this. If we say I'm innocent of His blood, we are ensuring our guilt. But if we say, His blood be upon me, we are ensuring our forgiveness. Because it is only by His blood and through His blood that we are saved. The burnt offering was substitutionary. We'll look down at verse 9 of chapter 1. Its entrails, and this is interesting, its entrails, in however, and its legs he shall wash with water. Why? What's the deal here? And here we begin to see how the specificity with which God tells them how to do these offerings, it leads us to pictures of Jesus. It helps us to see Him. I used to read these things, and, and as I went through, think, well, that's just random. Why did God? Do? It was so random. He, he just did it because he wanted to make it difficult for the Jews to show them that he couldn't keep the law. That's that's why. Just random stuff. Let's throw. Oh, while they're while they're killing the animal, let's have them wash its entrails. That'll be fun. <laughs> but that's not the deal. It's a picture here, gang. The water. The water speaks of the purity of Jesus. The purity. John chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. This is Pilate, the man who was sentencing him. And the man who betrayed him, Judas, in Matthew 27, verse 4, said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Jesus was pure. And the washing of the internal organs, the washing here of this beast for sacrifice, reminds us of the washing, the purity of Jesus. But there's more. The water also reminds us of the water that gushed forth along with, mingled with the blood when Jesus was speared in His side. The water that poured out of Christ, proving, by the way, beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dead and that His offering was complete that Jesus is completely sufficient in and of himself in that one death to save you and you don't need anything else I asked a couple of guys last night we were tiling over at Papa Murphy's in Anacortes and, and Jeff, D'Angelo and I there were a couple of guys helping us out and I said how do you guys know you're saved? and I, you know, we're, we're down there on the floor scraping and tiling and I just look over how, how do you know you're saved? they're both Christian guys and they were stumped. I don't know I don't know How do I know And they started to get Real, near, real nervous And they said well, well how do you know You're saved And I said I know I'm saved Well how do you know I just know How do you know <laughs> We spent about you know, Half an hour Going back and forth Well how do you know Well I, how do you know I know But Do you know You know because I know Who knows I know Do you know Dang Jesus' death If I accept that Sacrifice saves me Period and it absolutely amazes me how many Christians are not sure if they're saved. Or a little nervous about it. Boy, I hope he doesn't catch me on a bad day. <laughs> it would be terrible if the rapture happened right when I was yelling at my daughter. <laughs> Clean that room on am Just a second, Lord. <laughs> Alright, I'm ready. <laughs> Jesus' blood saved me. Period. That's the deal. The cross was sufficient. Jesus was pure enough. Though I am not pure... <laughs> Do I mess it up constantly and, and trust me on this if you knew me if you really knew me you wouldn't listen to me teach let's go on <laughs> a couple more things to know in Leviticus chapter 1 verse <laughs> do you want me to lose this job <laughs> Leviticus chapter 1 verse 11 also tells us something else that's interesting. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Oh, random. There's another just bizarre thing. Why there? Why northward before the Lord? Personally, I think it's because the crucifixion would be due north of the burnt offering of sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. Ahead of time. God is preparing He's drawing a picture He's giving us a cameo We can also take note And this is interesting Of the animals that are offered In these sacrifices An ox An ox It's a beast of burden Jesus Bears our burdens Psalm 55.22 Tells us to cast our burden Upon the Lord And He will sustain you Cast your burden Do you have something You're carrying Something that's heavy Awakes. Family matters that you don't know how to deal with. Physical problems that you're not sure what to, how to even pray for. Problems with friends, finances, all kinds of worries that the, the world will dump on our shoulders. And Jesus says, hey, cast them over here. Like the ox that is the beast of burden, Jesus bears our burdens. Or what about the lamb? The lamb, that picture of pastoral innocence. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that Lamb. I often think about this. I think it's so cool. When God created the first Lamb, He did so knowing that the Lamb would be a picture of His Son. The very way that God created the Lamb, formed it, shaped it, put it out into the meadow, He did so knowing this is what's going to cause people to think about Jesus. It's perfect. What about a goat? So we'll find out in Leviticus 16, we'll see it more clearly that Jesus became the scapegoat for our sin. But what about the birds? You bring a young pigeon or a turtle dove. I mean, obviously, if you can afford the ox, the lamb, the goat, but you could also bring a bird or a couple of birds. What's the deal there? It's interesting because when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple to present him as a newborn, They brought along a voluntary burnt offering and came to dedicate him. Now watch this. Luke chapter 2 verse 22 tells us the following. When the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Jesus was the firstborn. So they come up to the temple to dedicate him. And it tells us, verse 24 of Luke chapter 2, they came to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. Quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That comes directly from the law of burnt offering, Leviticus one verses fourteen through seventeen that we just read. Why did they bring two turtle doves? What was it about two turtle doves for Joseph and Mary? Was it just Christmas time? They thought, hey, if we could bring a partridge in a pear tree, we would. But we've got two turtle doves, so let's do that. That wasn't the deal. Why two turtle doves? It was because they were poor. They were poor. Which is interesting that the God of the creating of the universe, the creator, was born into poverty. To a, a mother and a father as earthly parents who had little or nothing. Too poor to bring an ox, too poor to bring a lamb or a goat, but they could afford a couple of turtle doves. And so they brought the turtle doves and they speak, these two birds speak of poverty. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And the gospel is a message of salvation to all people. All people, rich or poor, the blood of Christ is rich in grace. And financial standing says nothing about where you are with the Lord. If anybody knows Kenneth Copeland, you might want to mention that to him. So the burnt offering gives us a cameo of Christ's dedication. He was dedicated voluntarily, substitutionarily, dedicated in purity and even gained in poverty. Jesus came and was dedicated. That's our first cameo. Well, the second one continues. Cameo number 2 We'll start in verse one of chapter two with the grain offering. The grain offering. We've seen the first cameo, the dedication of Christ. The second cameo is the perfection of Christ. And this is fascinating. Watch this. Several insights that will help us see this cameo clearly. Verse 1. Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it, and then he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take from, his, from it his handful of its fine flour and its oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Verse 3 The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Now, this offering is blood free. It's a grain offering. It doesn't involve the sacrifice of an animal. But it's interesting, this word for fine flour here. In the Hebrew it's solet. Solet, literally sifted flour. Fine flour is probably a good translation because we're not talking about chunky flour. We're not talking about flour with bits of seeds and grain in it. We're talking about fine sifted flour. And in the perfection of Christ we know that Jesus was sifted like fine flour he was sifted what do you mean Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that after Jesus after Jesus was baptized he was immediately led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil Jesus was sifted he went through the test he went through the ringer not just in the crucifixion prior to that in his life in fact, the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Oh, how could God possibly understand me? Jesus. How could, possibly, how could God get the struggles that I have in my life? Jesus. For he walked in your shoes, in my shoes, sifted exactly like we are tempted, challenged, Put to the test in his life. Tempted, but perfect. Not a single sin. As we talked last night again about, do you know if you're saved or if you're not saved? And one of the guys said, you know, I, I, just, I, I know I'm saved. I just wish that you know, I could kind of be an advocate for my father, who I don't think is because he's a really good guy I wish there was somewhere in the Bible that said I could stand up for my dad and say, say you know what Lord he's, he's good he's just, can you take my word can I just can he get in on my you know salvation because he's a good guy and I said to my friend I said you know the only problem with that is nobody's good if there was if goodness could get us into heaven, you could be an advocate for your dad. You could go to bat for him, as it were. You could defend him in public court. You could say, Lord, hey, look at all the good things. Come on, easy. But the problem is one sin, one mistake, one mess up in our lives, and we know this. One spot of darkness, and heaven is out. And so the perfect lamb, the perfect offering, Jesus, went before us. In perfection, though he was sifted, Satan threw everything he had at Jesus, but to no avail. Jesus, like fine flour, contained nothing of the lumpiness and pits and stones and kernels that so many of us contain in our lives. But there's another interesting thing, and that is the week before Jesus died, when he came into Jerusalem. And I encourage you just to look up some of these verses at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the last week of his life. That alone is a fascinating study. But Jesus, if he had been sifted before, was even more sifted in that last week. He went through incredible testing on the part of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders. And that last week of his life, they threw everything they had at him. They were calling in lawyers to try and trip him up. And it's awesome to watch because Jesus bested them every single time. It's almost humorous because you know if they bring up the real haughty lawyer and he begins to ask the question, you know Jesus is going to wipe the guy out. And he does. But what's fascinating to me about that is that in the tradition of the Hebrews and in the law of God, the week before the Passover lamb was slain, the lamb itself was inspected on a daily basis. Through that final week, inspected, questioned, scrutinized, looked at carefully just the same way that Jesus was. He was sifted. Well, beginning of, or going back to verse 4 of Leviticus chapter 2, He goes on and says, Now when you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven, so you can either bring it loose as sifted flour or you can bring it baked in an oven. It shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be made of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. Bring a little syrup. No, actually that's not in there. In fact, we'll get to honey in a minute because you can't bring pancakes with honey. I'll explain that in just a second here. But Jesus was not only sifted, he was also sinless in that he had no leaven. Just like these two offerings, the unleavened cakes or the, the griddle cakes, they had to be made with unleavened flour. Unleavened, sifted flour. Now, there are certain symbols throughout the Bible that you will run into from time to time. In fact, you'll run into them so often, you just need to know what they stand for. Leaven is one of those. Oil is another one. If you see leaven in the scriptures, chances are it is referencing sin. Because leaven is a picture of sin throughout the Bible. And that's important to know, especially when you get to the New Testament and you start reading through the parables of Jesus. Or hearing the comments that Jesus makes about the Pharisees to his disciples and he throws out leaven. If you understand that leaven is a picture for sin, you will understand what Jesus is saying precisely. Oil is another one that's interesting. Oil always being a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sifted. He was sinless in that he had no leaven. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Leavens. Jesus had no leaven. Just like these cakes were brought and baked with unleavened flour. But Jesus also, though He had been sifted and was sinless, He also bore the Holy Spirit. And that's where the oil comes in, because oil in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 tells us, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, an interesting verse, a controversial verse. Joseph, son of David, the angel Gabriel said to Joseph, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's how she's pregnant. The child is of the Holy Spirit. What do you mean of that? Of the substance of the Holy Spirit. We, in trying to understand Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father as three separate entities within the Trinity, confuse ourselves and oftentimes miss the fact that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. That Jesus is God, that God is the Son, Father and Son are one, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, of Jesus, who is one and the same, and interchangeable. And so the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary's womb, but, but this is curious to me, and I, I thought a lot about this this week. The law of the grain offerings required that the sifted unleavened bread be not only mixed with oil, but also spread or poured over with oil what's the big deal with that well think through this Jesus was mixed if you will with the oil of the spirit he had the spirit he is the spirit in flesh in human flesh he had it all mixed in it was his character is his character conceived by the Holy Spirit and in the same way so are you when you're born again and this is very cool now you don't have the substance of the Spirit like Jesus did, but you have the Holy Spirit in you when you're born again. Jesus said, "That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit." John three six. And Peter said in his great opening day sermon of the first day that the church came together, Acts chapter two verse thirty eight. Repent, he said. Each of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. How do I receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? How do I have the a Holy Spirit mixed into the, the flower of my life? How do I do that? You give your life to God. when you are born again you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. How do you know you're saved Rick? Well I know. <laughs> I mean, I know. Yeah, but how do you know? I have the Holy Spirit in my heart as a pledge. And the Holy Spirit has confirmed to me I am saved. And I have no question about it. Even on my worst days, I still know I have the pledge, the guarantee. And God says that's part of the reason He gives the Spirit when you're born again. That you might have the pledge. That you might have that guarantee that when God looks at you, He sees His Spirit residing in you and says, okay, saved, taken care of. But there's something else interesting. As with the unleavened cakes, the oil of the Spirit was also poured out upon Jesus even though he already had the Holy Spirit. Think about this. If he was conceived by the Spirit, he already had the Holy Spirit for 30 years of his life before the Spirit came upon him at his baptism. So why did the Spirit come upon him? There's a picture here a picture of the Holy Spirit mixed the oil mixed in the case, and poured out upon the cakes two actions of the Holy Spirit Matthew 3.16 says after being baptized Jesus came up immediately from the water behold the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him Jesus had the Spirit was conceived by the Spirit but now the Spirit is coming upon Jesus so you might ask okay well when does that happen? are you saying there's two separate things that I I receive the Holy Spirit when I'm born again but the Holy Spirit can actually come upon me can be poured out upon me at another time that's exactly what I'm saying well how do I know when does this happen when you're ready for ministry when you like Jesus are ready for ministry I think that's when God pours out His Holy Spirit upon you I had a great email, and I already referenced it in an email that I sent out from Aaron Chelesky. And I just mentioned his name because I love embarrassing people up here. But Aaron had written me this this email, and he was just discussing some things with me about a recent experience that he had had. And there's a phrase in it, and I've got to quote it again. I, I quoted it in an email that I sent out earlier this week. But he said, I'm tired of underestimating God. And I love that. Aaron, that has been in here all week I'm tired of underestimating God. We're always underestimating. I'm tired of that. Stop underestimating God. And here in one man's life, God punched a hole in and said, Hey, I can do more. I can do more. You want to do more? You want to experience more? I've got more for you. I'm tired of underestimating God. Gang, there are Christians who will spend their entire lives on earth having been born again. Saved people mixed with the Holy Spirit who will never experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That there is more God wants to give you. But I am convinced through this study and through reading the Scriptures that God is not going to pour out His Spirit on you until you're ready for ministry. Until you're ready to to be used by the Spirit in acts of service. Why do people spend their lives if this is true that, that someone can be saved filled with the Holy Spirit but then... But then never receive this outpouring, this gift of the Spirit. Why is that? Because they never ask. Luke chapter 11 verse 10 says, Everyone who asks, Jesus speaking, receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And then he goes on, and listen to this explanation, it's critical. Now suppose, Jesus says, one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, right there, Jesus is telling us what the characteristic nature of man is. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? To those who ask. Holy Spirit. ...comes into the life... ...of a person when they're born again... ...but the Holy Spirit will also... ...can also be poured out upon you... ...spread over you... ...as the unleavened case... ...poured over you... ...for ministry... First Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4 says... ...there are varieties of gifts... ...but the same Spirit... ...and there are varieties of ministries... ...and the same Lord... ...there are varieties of effects... ...but the same God... ...who works all things in all persons... ...but to each one is given the manifestation... ...of the Spirit... For the common good. And let me just add this little note to the called. Spiritual callings and gifts are not a measure of salvation. Please hear me on that. Spiritual gifts are not a measure of salvation. One person has some really outspoken spiritual gift that they're able to use. Does not make them more saved than someone else who doesn't share that same gift. One man might have the gift of healing. Something that's interesting to me that we see a whole lot more in the third world and in the mission field than we see in America today. The healing we see in America today tends to be pretty suspect, at least the way we see it on TV, isn't it? But someone may have the gift of healing, a beautiful, powerful gift, and be able to use that. But because this person does and this person doesn't, does not make the person who has the gift more saved. And I will say this, that there are churches that will pronounce if you can't speak in tongues, you're not truly saved. That is not biblical. It's not biblical. The gifts are given for the common good. Spiritual calling, spiritual gifts, they're not a measure of salvation, but, and listen to this, they are critical in sanctification and in unification because these same gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are to minister to the body to bring the fellowship closer together to care for the needs of his church they are necessary they are important and I believe personally and we can argue about it all you want later and that's fine with me they are active today and can be as active as they ever were in the first century church the question is whether or not we're going to believe it so like the grain offering, Jesus was sifted. Jesus was sinless. He bore the Holy Spirit. He was had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him. Look at verse 6. Going on, verse 6 of chapter 2 tells us, You shall break it into bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. How obvious is this? Number 5, Jesus was shattered. Sifted, sinless He bore the spirit I guess that would be number 4 He was shattered Like the grain offering Jesus was broken into bits What do you mean? Matthew 26 verse 26 While they were eating Jesus took some bread After a blessing And he broke it And he gave it to the disciples And said take, eat This is my body Interesting that God would choose In the grain offering That they would break it into bits This unleavened bread Would be broken up Before it's offered to the Lord And we take communion today and we break the bread. It's broken up as a symbol of the brokenness of the body of Christ. Verse 7, going on. Now if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil, again with oil. And when you bring in the grain offering which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest then shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire, which is really nice for me to hear because what that indicates is that teachers, leaders, in this case the priests, are taken care of. So I don't have to worry about that. Verse 11. No grain offering Which you bring to the Lord Shall be made with leaven For you shall not offer up In smoke any leaven Or any honey As an offering by fire to the Lord See there you go Pancakes and honey Pancakes and syrup God says I don't want the syrup If you're going to make a cake Leave the syrup at home What's he talking about? Once again we come to these Interesting little tidbits And we go What's the honey Have to do with anything here?
1: Fascinating
0: Honey's not a bad thing Okay, it's not that honey's negative or a symbol of sin or something like leaven because God tells the people He's going to take them into a, man, a land flowing with milk and honey He uses it descriptively as a beautiful thing the Bible also talks about honey as being a description of the word of God the drippings of the honeycomb is as sweet as the word is sweet so what's the deal with honey? why does God say no honey in the offering? let me just give you a couple of things that I, I surmise here first of all Honey, and I'm a honey connoisseur. You need to know. If you ever want to make rich Day, bring me some honey. Okay? Because I love honey. And in our family, and it's actually kind of gross, we put honey on everything. Hannah the other night was putting honey, I kid you not, on her green peas whatever so I know honey in this house and here's the deal with honey I've discovered if it sits in the cupboard very long and it doesn't in our house but I would go to my grandmother's house as a kid growing up and the honey would sit there and sit there and sit there and I was the only one that ever used it and there were many times I would go in get that honey pour it on bread and it would come out all sugary and crusty and crystallized and nasty and honey does that sweet as it is when it sits around unused it crystallizes and God doesn't want that in offerings He doesn't want us sitting around unused He doesn't want our spiritual lives our Christian lives to be lives that are stationary but dynamic lives where we are involved in loving others involved in ministry involved in service as Jesus' life was dynamic honey that sits around Now, we don't need any of that. But there's there's something else interesting about honey, and that's simply this, that honey breaks down when you heat it up. The hotter it gets, the more melted it gets, the more runny it gets, until ultimately it just breaks down. When the going gets tough, honey melts away. But Jesus, Jesus, He came out of Gethsemane strengthened he came out stronger than when he went in. Oh, well, yeah, Rick, of course, because that's because the angel came and strengthened him. That's why he came out stronger. And I guarantee you, Jesus when he came out of Gethsemane he didn't look good, but yes, the angel strengthened him. But why did the angel strengthen him? It was in response to Jesus' determination to go through with the sacrifice. Jesus' willingness, his his absolute commitment to follow through when the going got tough Jesus didn't stop when the fire of sacrifice the altar began to heat up beneath him he didn't run he stayed the course Jesus was sacrificed sifted and shattered and sacrificed Second Timothy 3.12 by the way tells us indeed all all who desire to live Godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted it's going to happen you can count on it. Let me just say it clearly. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. And I think the phrasing is interesting. I believe I've mentioned this before, but it's not just if you desire to live in Christ Jesus, as many Christians do. I'll be, you know, I'll be a Christian. It's if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus. If you determine to accept God's challenge not to underestimate Him. If you say, I want more. I want to live for the Lord. I want my life to be a reflection of the Lord. You're setting yourself up to get knocked around and maybe even to end up on the altar of burnt offering. It's going to happen. Just thought you might want to know that. One of the greatest tests of spiritual conviction is what happens when the heat gets turned up. You know someone really believes if they continue to act and believe even when they're under fire. And I pray that. I pray that for myself. I pray when it gets hot and uncomfortable and difficult that I won't walk away. And I hope the same for you as well. Well, verse 12 going on tells us, As an offering of first fruits, ye shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the fire. Every grain offering of yours... Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Salt. What's the deal here? A couple things to note. Jesus was the first of the season, and he was also seasoned with salt. He was the first of the season, and seasoned with salt. For the grain offering was to be an offering of first fruits it was a way of the people as they got their first fruits to give back to God first that's what the grain offering was about and the Bible tells us that Jesus was the first fruits 1 Corinthians fifteen 20, he's been raised from the dead Christ Jesus the first fruits of those who are asleep well Rick other people were raised from the dead absolutely but none of them stayed alive now, Lazarus was raised from the dead but he died again two funerals Jairus' daughter Raised from the dead And would die again But not Jesus He's the first fruits The first to be raised from the dead And to remain alive He was the first of the season But Jesus was also seasoned As with salt What is the salt representative of? Flip in your Bibles to Psalm 19 Psalm 19 This is a precious, precious psalm to me. Possibly my favorite one. Because of some personal things that were going on in my life when God gave me this psalm and and brought me to it. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. Listen closely. The law, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Who can acquit me of of hidden faults? Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. My rock and my Redeemer. Gang, Jesus is the Word made flesh. And we're told here that the law of the Lord, the Word, it's perfect. It's restoring. It's sure. It makes you wise. It's right. It rejoices in your heart. It's pure. It enlightens your eyes. It preserves your life. Salt being historically that great preservative. And Jesus preserves your life. God wanted the salt in the offerings as that picture of preservation. The preservation of mind, body, soul, and spirit like the precious Word of God. And the salting of the Word, by the way, sweetens our speech. The more you take in the Word of God, the more your speech will be salted by the Word of God. Paul said in Colossians 4.6, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person there's a power here a power that is tragically underestimated in our time Mark chapter 9 verse 50 tells us salt is good but if the salt becomes unsalty with what will you make it salty again have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another and so the word the word is necessary and yet the power of the word is so missed and it's so tragic because we have this, this I'm a broken record, record on this, folks, but we've got the love letters of God, we've got his word in our hands. And yet, so many of us choose not to read it, not to know it, not to spend time in it. And so no wonder our speech struggles. One of the other things, and I'm glad I didn't mention their names, but the, the two young men that were helping Jeff and I last night, we were talking, and one of them was just talking about struggling with cussing. You want to deal with your language? You want your speech to be salted? To come off better? To be more controlled? To be more godly? The best way you can do it that I know of is spend more time in the Word. So the more the Word is in you, the more salted your speech will be. We're well, going back to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 14 reading on hang with me we're almost done <laughs> no we are also if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things you shall put then you shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it it is a grain offering the priest shall offer up and smoke its memorial portion part of its grits and its oil and all of its incense as an offering by fire to the the Lord now you may ask as we look at these things you may say Rick are you reading too much into this are you getting too allegorical with the scriptures let me explain something at least in my approach to studying the Bible and I believe it's a biblical approach these things these offerings are absolute and real and literal as we read them God did give these offerings to Israel Well, interesting bug did you know there was a bat in here on Sunday morning? I didn't even find that out until after. I mean, we're you know, I'm up here worshiping and focused, not you know, all right. I heard he did like two or three. Is he up here now? Uh, not right. That's where he went though, right in this corner. Right up in that corner. Okay. Well, you guys on that side, just take care. I mean, that's when you know you're really. That's when you know you're really in a barn. Because the birds. I mean, any church can pipe in bird sounds. So no church is going to have a live bat flying around, I'll tell you that much. Anyway, where was I? Oh, reading into it. Yeah. These things are literal. These offerings really happened. I believe that the Bible is a literal book. Jonah was swallowed by the whale. Well, how do you really know that, Rick? Couldn't that whole thing have been an allegory? Well, Jesus didn't think so. He referred specifically to Jonah as a real and true event. And so I believe that the Bible is a literal book. However, there is power, listen to this, there is power in allegory, in pictures, in types, in illustrations. God wants to communicate his word to us. And there's no more powerful way to communicate than through stories and word pictures. And when someone can really get a grasp on word pictures and use them in speech, now I'll tell you what, my daughter's favorite time that she spends with me is at story time. Now she's thirteen years old, so don't tell her friends, but I still tell her stories. And she loves it. And most of my stories have, you know, like a little spiritual meaning. I mean I try and get, you know, something in there. I'm trying to teach her at the same time, but she gets it because of the word pictures, because of the illustrations. Tyndale, in his prologue to the third book of Moses, wrote the following. He said, When we have once found out Christ and his mysteries, then we may borrow figures, that is to say, allegories, similitudes, and examples, to open Christ and the secrets of God hid in Christ even unto the quick. And we can declare them more lively and sensibly with them than with all the words of the world. For similitudes have more virtue and power with them than bare words. And they lead a man's understanding further into the pith and marrow and spiritual understanding of the thing than all the words that can be imagined barbecues, unleavened bread, salted, spread with oil. We can understand and see how these things relate to Christ. God chose these things, gave these things to Israel as a law for them to follow, but as pictures that we could actually see. But is that really biblical, Rick? I think so. Hosea chapter 12 verse 9 tells us, God says I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make you to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast I have also spoken by the prophets I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets God says I use allegories all the time what was Jesus so famous for in his teaching? parables similitudes word pictures and so as we see Christ unveiled in the New Testament when we go back to the Old as we talked about Sunday morning we can see through the veil in these word pictures these cameos of Christ well one more and we're done tonight cameo number three it's not as long as the other two the peace offering the peace offering the burnt offering was the dedication of Christ the grain offering we saw the perfection of Christ and in the peace offering we see the satisfaction of Christ chapter 3 verse 1 I'm going to fly through this and let you go. Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings... If he's going to offer out of the herb Whether male or female He shall offer it without defect Before the Lord He shall lay his hand on the head With his offering And slay it at the doorway Of the tent of meeting And Aaron's sons the priests, Shall sprinkle the blood around On the altar From the sacrifice Of the peace offerings He shall present an offering By fire to the Lord The fat that covers the entrails And all the fat that is on the entrails And the two kidneys With the fat that is on them Which is on the loins And the lobe of the liver Which he shall remove With the kidneys You got that? Okay. Then Aaron's son shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the burnt offering which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord is from the flock, he shall offer it, male or female, without defect. And he's going to offer a lamb for his offering He shall offer it before the Lord And he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering Slay it before the tent of meeting And Aaron's sons and sprinkle the blood Sprinkle the blood all around on the altar Now from the sacrifice of peace offerings He shall bring as an offering by fire to the Lord It's fat again The entire fat tail Which he shall remove close to the backbone And the fat that covers the entrails And all the fat that is on the entrails And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Still with me? Good. Then the priest shall offer it up and smoke on the fire as food. Interesting. An offering by fire to the Lord. Moreover, if his offering is a goat... Then he shall offer before the Lord. Same thing. He's going to lay his hands on it. They're going to sprinkle the blood around. He'll present to the Lord. an offering in the fire it will be the fat. Verse 14, that covers the entrails. The fat on the entrails. Verse 15, the two kidneys, the fat that's on them, the lobe of the liver. Verse 16, the priest shall offer them up and smoke on the altar. Again, as food, an offering by fire for a seething aroma. All fat is the Lord's. You get that? Some of you may be saying in your life, Why? Oh, that is the Lord's. Love for that to be the case in my life. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. Now, we'll talk about the eating or drinking of blood and how that has been misused by some cults later on as we get further into Leviticus. But listen right now the peace offering first time you read through this with the exception of a few little quirky things it sounds like the burnt offering doesn't it just bring the animal you cut it up you do this that, and the other burn it on the altar you're done right wrong there's a very clear and distinct difference between this offering and the burnt offering the peace offering the peace offering what's the difference this offering is shared this offering is one where part of it is given to the Lord and part of it is kept by the person who is offering it And this is very important to understand. The Lord gets the fat off the entrails. He gets the kidneys and the fat all around that and the lobe of the liver. And you, if you were bringing this offering, you would get the rest. Further on in Leviticus 7 chapter 15, it gives us more information. It says, now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. My friends, it's a holy barbecue. (laughs) It is. It's a picnic with the Lord. It's luncheon with the Lord. It's supper with the Savior. It's food with the Father. It's a meal to be shared with the Lord. This is fascinating to me. God is saying, bring this offering, but this is one that we both get. I'll take the fat and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver. Mm. And you can have the rest. Share this with me, he says. Share this peace offering with me because He is our peace. Now I'm not going to read this whole thing right now but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 16 talk about how Jesus is our peace. How He brought two different peoples together, Jews and Gentiles, and made peace between them. Now you might say right now, there's no peace between Jews and Gentiles. Not in this world It's a proleptic prophecy. One that is so absolutely guaranteed to take place and come true in the future that it's written as though it's already happened. He is our peace. This peace offering is a picture of the peace that Jesus brings. He says, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. When Jesus says, I will bring peace, you better believe it. And he hasn't brought it yet. Or you may have peace in your heart. You may receive through the Holy Spirit the peace that passes understanding in your individual life, but we know we live in a world that is not peaceful. And yet it will be. It will be. But notice the Lord specifically says, all the fat is mine. You don't eat the fat. You don't eat the blood. These are mine. And in this peace offering, as we share this meal together, as we sup together, you don't get the fat. Now, in our culture today, we go, all right. 'Cause that stuff's nasty. That'll kill you. You know, you carve it off the edges and get it to the side of the plate, you know. And you ever go to get a meal and especially prime rib? I mean, good prime rib is great, but when it's got all the fat all in it, and you're trying to cut it out, and by the time you're done, there's no there's nothing there. It's very disturbing to me. I don't know why I mentioned that. But we we are so into health. But let me tell you something, gang. That's a recent phenomenon. Because in most ancient cultures in the world, and even in America up to, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, the fat was the best part. Man, bacon grease? It's nothing like good bacon grease. <laughs> Mixed in with stuff, yeah. And the fat, because it's chewy and sweet, and the flavor that's in that part of the meat. And in the ancient times, when, when God said, No, no, I get the lobe of the liver. We say great habit. The Israelites would be like... Well, that's not fair. I get the fat. That's the tasty part. That's the part I like, but that's what God says, no, that's mine. Now we have the experience, we have the opportunity, or the the advantage now of hindsight. We can look back. We understand some things at this point in the world's history about health that were not understood at the time. All the Israelites knew at the time was God was taking the best stuff. God was getting the fat. And we got stuck with you know the, the meat after that. And so the childlike Israelite would say, "That's not fair, not knowing that Father knows best, <laughs> that God knows exactly what he's doing, and that what was actually going on is God was taking the worst for himself. Mm-hmm. He was taking that which was bad for the people, that which would harm the people, that which would kill and saying, "No, I, I'll have that." You have the rest. Interesting. I say, God, I want to live off the fat of the land. I want the good life. I want riches. I want comfort in my old age. And God says, Well, it might be tasty, but it will kill you. So let me take that, and you trust me. And you eat what I give you. And you do as I tell you. You listen to my voice and you may think that you're not getting the best part but trust me, you are. I will take the worst part for myself and we know Jesus did on the cross but don't miss this last thing. The beautiful and intimate point of the peace offering is God is saying come have dinner with me. Come have dinner. Let's eat together. I am fascinated at the fact that in all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, so many of them revolved around a meal. He comes back from the dead. In Luke 24, verse 30, it tells us, when he reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They were having a meal. Jesus and the two men on the road to Emmaus that he had met. He stayed for dinner. Intimacy. Luke chapter 24 verse 41 through 43 tells us while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement he the resurrected Jesus said to them you have anything to eat? it's great well they're all freaked out about how spiritual and fantastic and supernatural this is he says has anybody got a burger or some fries because I could really use some. I'm famished and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them John 21 verse 12 one of my favorite passages in all of scripture Jesus says to Peter and the Apostles on the Sea of Tiberias, come have breakfast with me. Let's just sit down and have a meal. Don't miss the significance of this. For even in the Middle East today, a meal is intimacy. To share food with someone. We, we lack it to a degree in America. We, we enjoy having meals and fellowship together. But man, the Middle East, and especially in Jesus' day, if you sat down and had dinner together, as you ate from the same plate, as you shared the meat and the bread and the vegetables, as you took into your mouth and the other person took into theirs, you were taking some of each other. The meal was so intimate. And here, along comes the Father with the grain of the, the peace offering. The Father of peace and says, "Let's eat together. Let's share this together, you and I." And isn't any surprise? That in Revelation three twenty, Jesus says, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me." Christ is our satisfaction. The satisfaction of Jesus is what we receive in relationship in intimacy with Him. And He said, hey, my body is true food. And my blood is true drink. And we'll stop there for tonight. Father, thank You so much for these pictures. And Lord, we are blessed even just to look back and see the intimacy that You desire with the people of Israel. And Lord, when we see what Jesus went through on the cross, His body, bread that was broken, His blood, wine that was spilled, and then we hear Him knocking on the doors of our hearts and offering to come have a meal with us, it's amazing. It's amazing, Lord. That You would want that kind of relationship, that kind of intimacy with us. And it speaks to everything else we've talked about tonight, Father. We underestimate what you would have with us. Please, please, Lord, help us not to do so any longer, but to expect the most amazing things in our relationship with you. Father, bless each of us tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these pictures. And Lord, be with us as you will in Jesus' name. Amen.